0: Any uh, questions, anything you want me to discuss or tell you about? Just completely embracing the moment as is. (laughs) question. The, the, uh, in uh, the Eightfold Path is the, the right, samma, vayamo, which means the, the right amount of effort, uh, which is something like, that we need to uh, know on this intuitive plane, where, because it, you can't say, you know, how much effort you need for any any particular thing, it's something that you just you're, you're more aware of as a, as a life process rather than as a as something that you can define. Well say from selfish attachments, then we tend to be caught up in kind of obsessive, compulsive behavior, where we tend to do things in, always in extreme ways. Going, working too hard or not working hard enough or <coughs> going from one extreme which conditions its opposite. So we get this kind of disruptedness and, and lack of, of a sense of continuity and, and ease with life because one is either going to things too, working too hard or giving too much energy uh, or wasting energy Or not putting enough energy into anything Uh, and that is depending on you know how we're feeling whether we're (coughs) you know motivated or we're not or we're inspired or we're depressed by life or we're 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 ambitious or we're we're lazy or whatever then we we tend to just have various habit patterns we fall into. But in uh, reflecting on, as we develop the Eightfold Path, then more and more we, we, we learn our limits within the form we're in. You know, just, just how to, how to what, what is possible to do within the, the type of human state we happen to be in. Like, like one monk, one of the monks has had uh, this kind of, what we call this, this virus, uh, M.E., for the past few years, you know where you, you your your energy uh, is uh, never certain sometimes you feel all right and then you know only the, then the next moment you just have no energy to do anything and so it's uh, uh you know as a as a monk he he had to live in a community that was quite active actually and yet. Through reflecting and contemplating his own state, he began to learn how to to live and work within the energy limitations he had you know and this was something he could only do himself, something I couldn't dictate to him. I couldn't tell him what he should be doing if he, you know, he has to know what what he can do and and, and learn by trial and error really to to adapt to the conditions he finds himself in both as his own physical constitution and uh, the environment around him. So that's coming from right understanding of things and willingness to to investigate and then to see, rather than to just take a position, I can't do anything ever, or I've got to not give in to this weakness and fight it again, you know, and push past it. Uh, Those are the two extremes where one, you just give up totally and don't try at all, or, or you just refuse to accept it and, uh, and uh, then drive yourself, you know, and make everything worse, till you totally collapse. Whereas you're more aware uh, of how things are, then you can, you you find your ability to work and do things appropriate to the conditions of the here and now. And that's from the intuitive mind. You know, I can't tell you how much energy to put into anything as a kind of statistic, but I can certainly encourage you to to investigate and know how to say, you know, how to uh, develop, how to how to uh, work with even the most uh, unpleasant limitations. It's interesting sometimes you see people that have, you know, really pretty uh, horrendous physical limitations to work with and yet sometimes they're, they've gained a lot of wisdom out of it <laughs> because they've had to, you know, they, they they have very bad health or paralysis or whatever and they, they've had to learn how to live and operate within, within a, within a restriction, physical restriction that, that that, say, someone like myself has been quite healthy most of my life, never had to, you know, never had to, to live within such a restraint, physical restraint. Mentally, you know, we're still, you know, like, you you can still, your mind is conditioned to think in a certain way. People who have, say, been paralyzed by a car accident or whatever, you know, when they're young, they still have this mind that thinks in terms of being young and vigorous. And then this body that really is paralyzed a, takes a while to be able to to uh, coordinate the, the mind with the body again because if if you if your all your perceptions are being for good health and vigor as a young man, then when that's taken away from you can only feel angry or depressed or worthless or suicidal just wanting to kill yourself because you you can't operate in the same, to the same level and degree that you're conditioned to uh, through the mind. But the uh, reflective capacity of the mind and the wisdom then allows us to adapt. So we have amazing adaptability. It's interesting to see just on the human population over a planet how how adaptable humanity is, like from Eskimos in the North Pole to Amazonian Indians and, uh, you know, people living in sweltering, hot tropical countries or the Aborigines in the Australian deserts, you know, living on, on hardly, you know, where we would, you know, we think if we, the, the, their ability to survive is, is so, so refined, really what they need, they know, and where to find exactly what they need for survival. Where say, middle-class Europeans, we, we, want, we want this kind of storehouse, abundance, waiting there, you know, already there, guaranteed for a lifetime, <laughs> burgeoning stores, bank accounts to, to back us up, where if you take, like they say, the old uh, Australian Aboriginal people, they're fascinating, uh, uh, you know, they kind of hit bad times now because they've been intimidated by the white population, but they actually they developed an almost uh, refined and superb way of life that was based on, just on the edge of survival, you know, highly balanced, and yet they could have lived in more salubrious areas than they did, but they seem to be adjusted very well to uh, these very kind of spartan deserts. It's interesting to see how the mind and the ability to survive and how subtle it can become. Uh, and yet, say, and we, we look, you know, we tend to look down on them as kind of savages or inferior, and yet, yet our, our expectations of life are quite gross. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we want this kind of material abundance and hoarding, really, stuff to, to support us with, and the fact that we have, you know, created a terrible mess of the planet in the process. <laughs> so it's not always, you know, it, the, the, it is a good example of a, of a, uh, of how adaptable one can be, you know, and when one has to, and survival in the human form. <coughs> and this applies to, say, just like our own physical constitution and the aging process. As we get older, then we lose that youthful vigor. We have to slow down and we have to adapt to, to the uh, aging, the body that's getting old. And, and yet the mind can still be youthful mind, still thinking in terms of when I was 25, <laughs> and then the body not being able to 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 be 25 anymore, not even an illusory
1: 25.
0: <laughs> so then you then you can you know vanity, you you a vain mind, then is stuck and thinking, I hate it, it's not fair. That's a that's vanity, but as a dhamma, then it's it's dhamma for us. it's it's. It's part of my lesson in life to learn to slow down, to to have to say be more, move in a more uh, careful way, not be so impulsive. Having to to train my mind to be and to accept the limitation of my physical condition is a very good practice as far as spiritual development goes. As far as vanity goes, it's torture. But <coughs> but as, as spiritual, spiritual development, sure. it's perfect for it. Because we're living, this is, a, though, you know, as physicists are, you know, quantum physicists and modern scientists realize it, it's energy, we're living in the this is an energy form, everything is. There's nothing static. There's no Static substance to anything. (coughs) There's no hypostatic substance. So, so that one is, uh, you know, one is is that that whole way of where we can create illusions of of these assumptions uh, that we believe in that seem to influence us, like kind of views and doctrinal positions of some kind of underlying eternal substance or essence. And and then, but that is something we create in our mind when when actually looked at as a, as you know, as a perception we create. But the, the, the flow of life is, is, uh, you say, the ego, the sense of being a, a person and an ego depends on on the illusion of of a continuous kind of quality or substance that goes on and on and on that is particularly mine, my unique soul or my personality that is that is uh, kind of permanently there, influencing everything. That's the that's the the the, uh, the the Atman theory that the Buddha was very much saying. You know, this isn't this you can't, you know, when you're really mindful, it's not the way it is. That, that might be a viewpoint you might hold, but it's not actually as a, as a mindful realization of Dhamma, of the way things are, that's not the way it really is. So he wasn't trying to, to put it down and, and offer another doctrinal position, but presenting you with, the, with a way of realizing within the restriction that we have as human beings. I mean, we, have, we can realize, we can have ultimate realization, but within the restriction of our human experience. We're not gonna have ultimate realization from the position of God, which is like knowing everything about everything from, from the top of the macrocosmic universe. Where conceit, human conceit is what I can now, uh, just in this, in a very subjective mic- microcosmic position I'm in, is is it's trivial and not worth anything. So what I want to become is God and know everything about everything. This is a kind of Luciferian conceit. You know, Lucifer was the angel that wanted to become, who thought he was God, wanted to, it wanted to be God. And this is a problem, this is a human problem because there's a lot of that in us wanting, you know, despising uh, the, 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 our own ability to know from this from a very humble kind of knowing because what we can know directly is, is humbling to us it's not it's, it doesn't, it's not aggrandizing at all it does, you, don't, you, you don't swell up with pride by knowing the Dhamma <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> but you, you do, you know, but when you want to know everything about everything, then you, you can. I mean, you can, if you're very clever and have a, you know, uh, a lot of uh, kind of intelligence to, to remember and to manipulate uh, symbols and that, then you can think you know a lot, mm-hmm. which can be another, just a big ego rather than uh, a profound understanding, so that the spiritual realization is is based on humility and patience, not on accumulation of facts, figures, and knowledge about everything that 's why you know sometimes in you hear stories like in the Christian uh, tradition of like some kind of Franciscan monk that everybody thought was an idiot was really enlightened or you know the plain the fool or the, or the one that seems to be the most despised member of the community and, uh, and cannot, cannot even read or write is the one that actually understands the teaching it's not that saying that, that reading and writing is any obstacle but it's but oftentimes times that the fact that we do read and write we tend to expect we tend to think we create a pride and conceit out of it that blinds us from the actual realization because the realization of dhamma is very humbling it's it's something where where we we're not we're not uh, feeling that we the, the illusion of self and and one as being better or worse or same as or anything all well that falls away and and it is Ineffable realization. So therefore, it has to be a realization rather than than some kind of knowledge that's transmitted to you from somebody else. Think in, in religion, they all suffer, all religions suffer from the a holier-than-thou, a spiritual pride. And I think, why? Because they all, in their own way, teach, uh, encourage humility. And yet, you know, the human mind can, can be so deluded that you can be proud that you're humble. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I a lot of to the that the Yes, the well
0: the scriptures are what I've never been able to understand is how you can read those scriptures and not want to do it. <laughs> because when I read the scriptures, I just want to do it. You know, like, this is what I want to do. this kind of inspire me to practice it. And yet I've seen so many Buddhist monks read the scriptures and never, never practice it, you see. So you, it, it rather bewilders me in some way. Uh, because, but one thing is that, that, because uh, the scriptures really, most of them are very, you know, encouraging towards practice. And uh, they're, they're like, you know, as you practice, then the scriptures become, and then you read the scriptures while, and practice at the same time. It's like perfect combination. But the thing, the wonderful thing about Buddha Dhamma is that you don't need a lot of scriptures, like just the Dhamma Jaka Sutta, the Four Noble Truths, is really enough. That in itself is a perfect teaching. And uh, and therefore it, it is, you don't really need more than that, even though the rest are certainly supportive and helpful. But as a as a, uh, that's the first sermon the Buddha gave after his enlightenment, the Four Noble Truth, is actually, if you really penetrate that, then you've got it. That's all you need. But, um, then there are all these other scriptures too, which are like the Anathalakana and the Adita Buryaya and then, then all, then the whole, like the, all these are very, you know, helpful in their own way. But they're not absolutely necessary because actually the Buddha proclaimed his teaching in a very succinct manner. And, and then the Vinaya is also, like like in, in our tradition, in Thailand, the Vinaya was very important to understand and practice. So, so this, this whole way of restraint... Uh, is most in, helpful to us, because uh, actually the, the Vinaya, I think, is the least understood by the Western world, because it's boring. It's the least interesting side of the Buddha's teaching, you know. And, and so, you know, nothing more boring than read the Patimoka is there? I'd rather read the, the Sony television repair manual. <laughs> <laughs> But, but, but then as a... <laughs> more
1: boring than reading Practicing, <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> But it is, uh, I mean, like these, But the, the Vinaya being kind of made such an important thing in, in uh, like in the, with Ajahn Chah, then because that's more influencing your daily life and and your uh, your relationships with others, and that's where so much of the suffering comes from, is like with one's own you know impulsive outgoing tendencies or habits or fears or, or relating to other people, and and, uh, and and you're living in a monastic community where you don't have much choice about who you're going to live with. You have to live with whoever there. Uh, then you, you have to, there's a, a you can, you, you, you have a, a prescribed relationship, a way of politely respecting the rights and, of the people around you. And then, but you're encouraged to really look at your own rea- emotional reactions to them. And to, to not, and you have a very clear way of seeing what is, just your own personal preferences and likes and prejudices towards somebody, and what actually is appropriate behavior, according to the Vinya. So sometimes you have, like like sometimes some people, uh, uh, you know, in a, will, will take, in a, will have, like lay people, will have an aversion to a particular monk or head monk of a monastery. And then they'll come to me and they'll say that boy. so then you you think well has he, has he broken any of the major precepts? No. Has he, it's just then you get it down to the fact that they, they, they personally don't like the monk. And, and you're trying to get them to see it's just based on personal liking and on an and opinion rather than on actual faults because you're, you're establishing the sangha not on a Charismatic uh, a b- uh, quality, or on uh, on you know, personality, uh, att- attractiveness, uh, being able to attract and charm and entertain people, but on propriety and keeping within the restraint of the Vinya discipline. So that way, you 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 have always a way of of bringing attention to to something uh, uh, that is proper and fair and good, rather than just being influenced by whether you, you like somebody or don't. Where so many of the, uh, I remember in the, when I was a child in the, in the Episcopal Church in America, how they, we, we used to have the, such uh, battles going on in the, in the parish over personal liking or disliking of the priest. And uh, and nobody knew what was you know nobody knew how to handle it because you didn't you didn't have any guidelines it was just merely opinions and factions forming and and who would influence who and and uh, it was I remember having terrible uh, memories of of uh, life in a in an, an Anglican church when I was a child just uh, hearing these endless uh, jealousies and factions forming and thinking. I'm never going to become a priest, last thing on earth. (laughs) We're not like any of those things you say, you end up being that way. (laughs) But the, uh, just, where in, uh, in Buddhist, uh, Buddhist monasticism, you have much clearer references, because of the Vinaya, is, 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 is regarded, is still regarded highly. And this is, this is, I find, uh, helps, you know, in my own, because one naturally feels maybe more affinities with certain monks than with others, or, you know, these are, these are just natural feelings, but, and, and that, you don't want to have it influencing your mind, and determining whether somebody's good or bad, because you have an affinity or don't. But you, you learn how to, to accept uh, behavior or Character tendencies that might you might not particularly understand or even like, but in which are not wrong They're just different So you you're open to a kind of what you your mind is more prepared to accept variety than to just kind of narrow it down to what you personally prefer and what you're used to so we're, we're actually encouraged towards a much more kind of malleable malleable and flexible mind and embracing mind, rather than a tunnel vision, saying what I like is right and what I don't like is wrong, which is the ultimate conceit. (laughs) Yes? Um, And you said you don't understand
1: scriptures, do you mean Mm -hmm. the Old
0: Testament, the Ten Commandments? Are they scriptures? Uh, These are Buddhist Buddhist scriptures. Yes,
1: but you said a little while ago that it's found it very difficult to understand the scriptures.
0: Um, are you excluding the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament? It well, so takes me a very simplistic way. Well, they, those are the Christian scriptures. Huh? Those are the, we're talking about Buddhist scriptures. Religion, basically, you're establishing a moral, a moral commitment, like Ten Commandments are a, uh, you know, a, a basic uh, uh, acceptance of, of restraint, moral restraint, moral commitment. And so you, and also you're, you're establishing your, you know, your belief, you're believing in, in an ultimate reality or in God. I think the first commandment is I believe in God, isn't it? And so, this is uh, the but the, the Christian and Jewish attitude is very much it's a the, they're a theistic approach. So they tend to tend to use commandments from like God commanding is very much the the attitude of of God telling us uh, the. The Buddhist uh, attitude is is different than that. It's not it, because there's not a metaphysical doctrine about God. Then there is the moral precepts are more. Uh, they're they're uh, for they're not commandments, but they're standards to reflect from. So you have like the the first moral precept, which is to refrain from intentionally killing other. Human beings. Uh, this is uh, this is this is not a commandment uh, in the same way it is in, say, Christian or Jewish religion. But it is a precept that we take uh, for ourselves to to live and try to live within that determination to refrain from taking the life of, intentionally taking the life of, uh, human beings. And then we can kind of move on as we, we, we have more respect. Say, most of us have, are not particularly inclined towards killing other human beings, but we can, say, kill uh, other creatures. So like a Buddhist monk is refraining from intentionally taking the life of other creatures. So that we, we're just, uh, uh, say, taking on this precept as a way of, of committing ourselves to respect life. But it's not commanded, it's not like if you kill an ant, that you've committed some kind of dreadful sin. In the in that 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 is, uh, you know, it's not judged from above any from from above as a as a sin, but what you're trying to do is, say in Buddhism is to is to create a sense of personal responsibility for for your actions, taking on the responsibility for what you do and say. Uh, so that and then that becomes more subtle and refined at first, you can start out on a very coarse level, like say with the five um, in 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 some places in the world you can 't even teach the five moral precepts you 're just trying to encourage people to be generous or to be kind you not, you're not trying to get too refined, but just if you 're with very kind of uh coarse and brutal people, if you, if you present a moral standard that's too high, they just, you know, they can't relate to it at all, you can't help them. But if you present them with, with uh, things that they can actually succeed in doing, such as uh, refraining from killing other human beings, uh, then, then they can actually take that on and determine to do that. So to, to refrain from doing that. So this is a way of kind of leading onward and encouraging people where sometimes moralism tends to come from a very high ideal of morality and then that ideal of morality is kind of imposed on, on people where they feel they can't live up to it. So they tend to, either they uh, they uh, they feel oppressed by morality rather than encouraged or leading onward so in in the western world like victorian morality and uh, when in the west we've had we we feel a lot of mistrust and aversion to the idea of morality because we connect it with with a kind of moral tyranny you know like you have to be moral or you're going to go to hell or you know and, and this, this sense of of uh, a kind of hypocrisy, where the the society says you should be this way, but nobody really is. Nobody's willing to admit it. You see, so we you know the modern say European uh, American uh, societies have rebelled against that, A kind of moralis- moralism and uh, a, a moral tyranny. And, and therefore, like when I came to England 13 years ago, uh, talking about morality was a sure way to make everyone leave very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> I lived in London. I remember giving a talk one night in the Hampstead Vihara, and there were all these uh, kind of uh, hippies. Uh, in Hampstead in those days, they had these kind of, what do you call them, like squatters and communes, and, and people that were just, young people that were just squatting in, in empty houses and living in communes and they were all drugs and, and sex and all this so that they, you know, they, they were this kind of libertine attitude they came to the Bihar one night and, and I gave a talk on morality and never saw any of them again <laughs> as so, <laughs> because, because, I was presenting, because, you know, I wasn't really being sensitive to where they are, you know, I was more or less coming from, maybe from a, a self-righteous place, or, a, or, you know, I was talking about something that they still saw as something they didn't want. Uh, I, I remember uh, Lung po Cha, our teacher, Ajahn Chah, when he came, uh, uh, in seventy nine the second time he came to england and uh, so well some some people came and and uh, were questioning him about why he taught people meditation when they didn 't have proper morality yet because in Asia you get this idea first you practice this sila, this moral state, and then from there you do the meditation, you get the samadhi, and then you from Samadhi you get the wisdom, or the, the highest state. And you start from here, and then you go from here to here, to this top place. And this, this is how, you know, the, 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 they generally would regard it. And, and where Lung Pa Chah was teaching them about wisdom, the highest point first, and and talking about wisdom a lot, to people who obviously moral life was, was uh, anything but impeccable, so so you you know you you then uh, these people criticize him for it, and so he said he said well he said you you uh, you know with with Buddha Dhamma you you have to be sensitive to where people are and if and if you know you it, they all they eventually it all come together but if you're if you're talking about uh, morality to somebody who who doesn't uh, doesn't understand what you're talking about or doesn't appreciate that, then all they, they tend to just dismiss it so you start with what they're really interested in because you're trying to inspire the mind at first you're trying to create an interest in in the, in it rather than take a very fixed position and a kind of well, a kind of moralistic position and a, jud- or a righteous judgment on them. You're you're trying to present them with with something that will awaken their mind to a certain degree, to where they and in uh, often in London in those days, uh, morality was was considered you know something you didn't something of a bygone age. It was li- liberty and freedom that was the rage, you know, being free and spontaneous and doing what you want was the... So that, but also there'd been a, a level of, of intellectual development in which you could approach people on an intellectual plane. So you could discuss Buddhist philosophy or psychology with them first, you know, and they could respond to that, they'd take an interest in that. And that would kindle maybe some level of faith or interest in, in pursuing it further. So this is just a skillful means of, of presenting uh, something in which you can, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're tuning in to people's needs rather than judgment, judging them from a very fixed position about what, what you think they need uh, from your own uh, kind of place in your, in your own life. Like if I'm, because of the kind of high de- highly developed moral uh, restraint and renunciation of a Buddhist monk, it would say if one was attached to that on a personal level, then you, you become holier than thou. You know, I, I'm i so much better than everyone else because I'm celibate and I don't have money and I do this, I don't do that. And, and uh, you know, one could become very conceited and, and the, the holier than thou would appear. But that is a really ugly mental state. You know, to feel if you really look when, when any time you feel that you're better than somebody else, if you really look at that feeling it, it's a very ugly feeling. It's not nice it's not beautiful or pleasant or happy to feel that you're somehow better than anyone else. So that, that if you really look at that, you, know, you see that 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 purity isn't a matter of keeping rules, moral rules, but in in freeing the mind from delu- selfish delusions and conceit and, and uh, that that kind of mental state. So then the then the moral precepts are more like standards that one refers to. And tries to follow and restrain one's action and speech within the standards provided, as a way of training yourself, rather than a position you take, a moralistic position you take, and judge everything by. One used to think, because you you know, one was brought up as a more in this kind of level of uh, uh, say, I was brought up in a in a very. Kind of, moral family, where, where the expectations for moral behavior were very high. So you, you, uh, one develop, you know, it's easy to develop a kind of um, self-righteousness with it. And then to, to re, to really, uh, to make judgments, moral judgments about others. So, but in, Meditation—you're aware of of uh, of suffering so much that you see. You know, I've seen the suffering of being attached to kind of fixed views, moral opinions about things, and and you realize what uh, what a, a miserable state it is to be to to feel holier than someone else.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes.
0: I mean that's real suffering to to want to kill Salman Rushdie. You know, that that kind of indignation uh, is is a very is it, it's it obviously is a very exciting state, you know, vengeance and that excites the mind. But if you really look at it, it's it's a very miserable state to be in, to to want to destroy another creature out of uh, just uh, out of being caught out into, right, I'm sure most of the people that want to kill him, I've never read the book. <laughs> so, it's just, uh, you know, a reaction, a kind of flock reaction to, to something. This this man you all should want to kill, <laughs> kill him! <laughs> There was a cartoon in the New Yorker years ago, (coughs) Pacing a beautiful gothic cloister.
1: One of them's got a scowl on his face. He's saying, but damn it, man, I am holier than (laughs) (laughs) this.
0: Like, with karma, you would uh... I'm, I'm all for introducing the law of karma into the British school system. <laughs> they would make dramatic changes in behavior. Because it is interesting to see like cause and effect. I mean, like with children, if you... Because children are uh, willing to reflect on things, and contemplate things, and wonder about things. So, I mean, like, like if you point out that if you tell a lie, uh, well, what does it, what is the karma of, what is the resultant karma of lying? Well, if you really look at yourself, you know, like, like, then you begin to see that, it, it, when I tell a lie, or I misrepresent something, there lingers something in my mind, something lingers there, a sense of something not being right, or guilt, or fear of being found out. Or there's something, even though you're never found out, and everybody believes it, there's still the knowledge, your own knowledge, that you've that you've misrepresented something. And so that is the resultant karma of lying is suffering. Where, say, if you do a good action, like you you uh, do something kind for your mother, help her do the dishes or whatever. And then you do that, you offer it. She doesn't, you, she hasn't forced you to do it. She isn't, you aren't doing it because she's standing over you making you do it. You, you volunteer to do it in order to show respect and help your mother. Then the result of that, what does it feel like? What does it feel like to do good things for people? And then you see there's a kind of joyous feeling in your heart. So you, you can figure it out. You know, you can you can begin to see the cause in, law of cause and effect. That if you do a good deed, then the result is a good result. You feel, you have a good feeling about it. You have a joyful experience. If you do something bad, then you have... Uh, fear and anxiety and guilt to kind of haunt your mind as a result of that. So when you, when you figure that out then you, you want to be careful. You're not thinking I'm being good because I'm afraid of being caught. You're thinking I want to be good because that's what I love being. I love being good and the, the result of being good is a good result and it's, it's, it it's, uh, brings joy into my life where doing bad things only brings fear and self-hatred and worry and paranoia. And it's like like in uh, the golden rule, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. And these kind of teachings are are very good. Children are quite willing to to ponder on those. What is it Like if you like if you uh, like cruelty, sometimes children can be quite cruel, like kicking or torturing animals or whatever. And then if you if you get them to contemplate, I mean, you can just scold them and and uh, you know punish them for doing that, or you can get them to reflect on what is it like to to hurt something, and then. What is, it, what is it like when some, if, if I were to kick you, what would you feel like? And then then you, then you think, well it would hurt, I would be upset. Then you think, well, the, the dog is, doesn't, is, feels that way, feels upset, feels uh, you've made him unhappy by, by, by disrespecting him and so forth. And then children will, you know, unless they're psychopathic or something, will tend to to, to think about it anyway. Then, you, then you're developing in their, in their minds a kind of in, uh, an integrity. They're not just being good because they're afraid of being punished. They're being good because they actually see the, the value and the result of being good. It has its own reward. Where oftentimes one is good because you're are too frightened to be bad. And you... <laughs> <laughs> or yeah or you you know you've been told that if you're bad, you're going to go to hell, so you're good because you don't want to go to hell, but it's still it's still a dodgy kind of goodness because uh when the when the cat's away, you know what the mice do, and so <laughs> so that well, you know you're not developing a sense of personal uh insight into karma, you're just more or less uh. Conditioning people to be good by rewarding them when they are and punishing them when they are. So you get a, a kind of intelligent rat or <laughs> chicken. <laughs> but in but the, the, the thing that the law of karma is actually for contemplation. And I find the more more I contemplate karma, the more <clears throat> You know, one really does any evil actions, or bad actions, or selfish actions, and speech just like, like sticking your finger into the fire. It's just so painful that you don't do it. You know, there's no reason to do it. No reason to, to, to cause pain to yourself. this is where you build a, 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 this kind of integrity, personal integrity, which then is, is a, has, a, has a strength, you know, of trust, there's a trust, you can trust that. You're not just, you know, making everybody smile because you're present, but when you're gone, they're, they're, they have self-respect to carry them on. They aren't just dependent on someone controlling them. Like one can see in a, in a despotic system or a tyranny, where you're rewarded and punished <coughs> by the people above you, that you don't develop personal integrity in those systems. You, you can't, personal integrity doesn't develop, I mean, it might be the exception to the rule, but it's not it's not the result of the system itself, um uh, in uh, when, you, when you are encouraging this, in, in this human state, this ability to contemplate things and karma, uh, law of karma is a really good contemplation especially you know, for all of us but especially a very very skillful thing to teach children because uh, then they they you're you're developing their reflective mind and they can experiment and find out and then you can bring things into their consciousness like what does it feel what you know just like i was saying if, if i should kick you what would you feel like you bring Things like that into their mind, then they start thinking of, of what it's like to be abused, where if you don't do that, then they tend to, <laughs> to think maybe it doesn't matter. I mean a dog doesn't is just a, another thing that you use rather than a sensitive creature like yourself i I, I like to contemplate like just that because human beings were so conceited and. Think we're so much better than every other creature, that. But then, when you contemplate just the feeling of, uh, say, the sensitivity of the animal kingdom, you you begin to realize it that their anguish and suffering is the same thing. It's a, it's it's painful, and it's and it's the same. It's the same anguish we have. Uh, that the problem is that that we. Uh, that, that we have retentive memories, so we, we, we can carry it along, we can remember it for a long time, where they don't, can't remember it. But the actual moment of abuse is as painful for them as it is for us, I'm sure. At least I find thinking like that more beneficial to me than to think that somehow my pain is somehow much more real and important than, than the dog or the cat's pain.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <he did. laughs> mm-hmm. <clears throat> In connection with that someone said to me once, um, the most selfish thing you can do is to forgive someone. And I didn't understand that until something arose when, so you know, I was thinking, And she was that and she was down. And look at that how rotten right. and then it it's sort of occurred that if you don't think that it's only you that suffered. You've gone through all that. You know, if you wanted to make sense of you
0: didn't know what you were going through. So it is really, you know, look at it. Well, like like that whole view of, of I've been abused or I've been mistreated is like in, in meditation. You 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 you're just letting go of that whole attitude that I'm someone who can be abused. So there's nobody to forgive because <laughs> there's nobody that was abused. there might be abuse and that but i mean then but also one can just contemplate forgiveness in different ways, like it can be just a very kind of well i forgive you and kind of a conceited uh, patronizing uh, experience, or it can mean really you know i'm'm I'm, I'm, I'm going to let go of this, I'm not going to carry this around, which might mean to you you're forgiving. But, uh, you know, forgiveness in a pure form is merely just letting go of it. But, if, but it also can be this very patronizing form of, well, I, I forgive you <laughs> for, for your horrible behavior to me. <laughs> <laughs> But that's where, like like with, with physical pain, is it like, say, when I think of a, like, kicking the dog as a, and the pain, the actual physical pain, and the feeling of being abused, you know, of contempt, and from, from say, if I kick the dog in anger, then there's this, this, this ugly state in my mind, in the physical action, and it actually uh I, I, the object is the dog's body you see and then the then the pain that the dog is feeling from that plus the 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 picking up just the ugly mood and the aversion and all that because they're sensitive enough to 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 be aware of that to to be affected by that uh then one is is uh say when, when, say, if, if somebody did that to me, there would, I'd like to think of it as being the same feeling. Because the, the sensitivity's there, except the, 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 the actual sensation and the same miserable experiences, I would would consider the same. But then the difference that lies in that I would I could carry it in my mind for a long time and hate somebody the rest of my life for having done it. But the dog wouldn't. You know, the dog doesn't remember, wouldn't, wouldn't hold it in, in thought, and in say, I'll never forgive Ajahn Samedo for kicking me. <laughs> and then somebody, the dog goes o- off to another place and somebody mentions Ajahn Samedo and he gets angry. And the, they wouldn't have that kind of suffering, but we would. If I kicked you, <laughs> and then, then you'd, then, you know, you'd go back to Lee's and somebody would say, Arnold oh, Tomato's a very kind, benevolent teacher. And he'd say, oh, he's a brute. <laughs> what he did to me. <laughs> and that is because you have memory. And you, so you, you couldn't, you know, you'd, you could carry that around the rest of your life. Uh, just keep regurgitating, bringing up this, this one unpleasant experience. And that's the suffering, the real suffering of our human state. Because we we, uh, we, uh, we can do that. But it's also through that that intelligent and reflective mind and thinking, thinking in the right way, that we can actually be enlightened beings rather than merely conditioned ones. So our sensitivity, our intelligence and all this, is in one way, it makes life very more difficult for us. And, and we suffer a lot from it. You know, we worry and anxiety and anguish and, and regret and all this haunt our lives because of this. But then in meditation, in practice of Dhamma, you're transmuting this from a painful kind of obsessiveness to wisdom and enlightenment. It's a changing just the attitude the w- and the, through right understanding. Then, then your intelligence, your sensitivity, you regard as a great gift, as a thing to respect and appreciate in yourself, rather than a kind of burden to carry about that just makes your life increasingly complicated and difficult. I don't understand. Man. Well, like utopian ideals are, like, like, like idealism itself is, is a, uh, like, we our society is a very idealistic one. It has, it gives, gives us high standards and ideas to work with, uh, and then, but because of that, we we tend to become very critical of of life because we. We're coming, we're, we're attaching to how things should be as an ideal. And then life is not like that as an experience. It's not ideal in its, in its actual quality, in, a, in, a, in its changing nature. So, so in, uh, say, in contemplation, and reflection on life, we're, then we take our idealism not as a thing we grasp, but more as a guiding star to keep a direction clear, but not something we measure everything from. Like if you're grasping a high ideal, then you measure yourself and everyone else by it, and you're always going to come off as inferior. If you take the highest ideal and then measure your own self or someone else with it, you're always going to feel like a failure or inferior to it. But if you see that an ideal is a direction, to keep to keep your like to keep your direction clear, you need a like a guiding star, something to focus on. But you also need to be aware of where you are, of what's in front of you. Otherwise, you know, if you're looking at the guiding star, you'll fall off the cliff and trip over the log or whatever. And, and so, but if you if you have, if, but if you don't have a guiding star, then you just get lost in the morass of life. You know, you're just, you're not going in any direction, you're just more or less stumbling about. Uh, or going through the motions of, of moving from one place to another without any aim or direction to it, just wandering. So, in, in like in Buddhadharma, you're, you're aiming at the highest realization, at Nibbana, is the, is the, 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 the guide, the guiding point, and then the then the the way is always very practical, bringing attention to where you are and and uh, to be mindful of of the conditions that are affecting this moment uh, and in which you can uh, keep your direction clear and get through the kind of difficult patches and obstacles and and uh, hindrances that that inevitably are part of our physical and emotional experience. then in so much of the like materialism, modern materialism uh, and it's like empirical science and modern materialism, they tend to they don't have any any transcendent direction. They're merely kind of trying to find Trying to uh, think that all there is is just the road in front of you, and that's reality, or that the material world, or the society, or, uh, or or that is 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 what's reality, and so you're 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 very earthbound, and you can just see it's like 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 the modern architecture of materialism is all. Square earthbound buildings. You get even high rises are are rectangles stuck under the planet. There's no aspiration. Where if you if you see like religious architectures, always oh, has a spire as a has a steeple as a, has a something that points upward, something that directs your attention to to the heavens or to the stars or to to some, which is symbolic of transcendent. You see, so we, you know, modern materialism is ugly and, and uh, and coarse and vulgar. Just, it just gets you get just stuck into, into the mud and muck of planetary life, and no matter how you refine it and and kind of, you know, manipulate the material world around us, it, it gets even more disgusting after a while. You can see just how pollution and and uh, 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 you know, through trying to manipulate the material planet that we live on and make it and transform it into plastic and all kinds of things that to suit our wishes and desires, how we've created uh, quite difficult problems of just survival uh, out of our lack of keeping our guide, our our direction clear. Because we've just been enamored with material world uh, to where we 've lost any transcendent we, our direction or we were just wandering, just wandering around on this planet for no purpose or no good reason it 's just meaningless and empty where i was here i was uh, i lived in uh, um, like twenty five twenty six years ago i lived in uh, i was was sent off to North Borneo in Sabah State to live for, uh, as a teacher, Peace Corps teacher. And that was in 1964. And I remember then it was a relatively, you know, unspoiled place. And, and I lived on the East Coast in a very small little seaport town and there were no roads. You had to to get to this town. You had to go by, by, the straight ship, or by. They had a little airfield with little, like Piper Cubs and little airplanes flying in. Uh, so then you, then you were, uh, then over. The, then I met somebody the other day who, had just come from Sabah or from, from Borneo, and said that. Now the jungles of of Sabah are almost non-existent. And that they built the roads and they said, if you drive from the capital city of Kinabalu to Sandakin, which there was no road there when I was, when I lived there, there was no road yet built. They say it's completely raised. No, there's not a big tree in sight. It's all just flattened. And, and then you think, you know, Borneo was one of those treasures uh, of, uh, on the planet. It was an island that was never affected by the Ice Age. It had all kinds of life forms on it that don't exist anywhere else, you know. All kinds of delicate insect life and reptilian life and forms that, that, that were pre-Ice Age forms. And all this has just been kind of you know, demolished because you can make lots of money by selling hardwood trees from the tropics to the Japanese. So you (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, out of just human greed, you know, you completely destroy uh, a, a, a magical and wonderful uh, environment. Just for, say, just for a few, a handful of people to become extraordinarily wealthy. And you think, what selfishness and and meanness of heart go into that? You know, and you feel very indignant at such such a misuse but that is the result of, of being earthbound and thinking only of yourself and your own security on this planet and you have you've lost your direction you have no guiding star, you have no direction from the heavens to guide you, you're just thinking you just get obsessed if I sell more trees, sell all this, this jungle, all these wonderful trees and I'll make millions of pounds become really rich. I can buy everything I want. And from that, you know, you you're you're just a wanderer on this planet and you're a polluter and you're you're a destroyer. Where the human being, if it's if it's related to its transcendent goal, then we are like great blessings. We can be we can be that which blesses the planet. We can be the caretakers. We can we can respect the animal life the the, uh, the plant life of the planet, the, the waters and the, the mountains, the skies, all this, then are like we, we, we respect it, we, we um, protect it we bless it through our understanding of Dhamma or of truth. But when we don't have that, then we end up as the worst pests on the planet Because we are, so far.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) We haven't blessed it very much. (laughs) What I
1: find difficult is how I cope personally when I get those feelings of anger because standing outside McDonald's with a pat on doesn't seem to (laughs) do (laughs) anything.
0: Well, you. It's um, well. One thing you can always do is 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 to develop within yourself the right attitude towards yourself and towards life in general, and not. Uh, I mean, because it doesn't. Sometimes it's easy to blame. You know, the the multinational industrial, more industrial complex, and all that and to hate them for it. But uh, that also is is just creating the same conditions that stimulate the destructiveness. It's not in, it's not in pointing the finger and hating, but in keeping your your own direction clear, and, and relating your life to transcendent reality, and to let go of anger and hatred, and to, and then to do what you can to try to encourage or right understanding and moral uh, responsibility in the people around you without becoming a, a kind of preacher or a, you know, someone who's, who's demanding anything from them. But just through our own example, through as, as we develop, then that, that has a tremendous effect on the people around us. But what we most dread and mistrust in religion is hypocrisy. You know, me telling you what you should do without me bothering to do it. That is what we, what we despise and we fear, because we've seen a lot of that, how easy it is to say the words, but how difficult it is to do it, or to be that way. So, they, as we develop a more patient and uh, wise understanding, of ourselves. Then, then that has its effect on, on the environment. And then say, we can even guide or be in, involved in like protests, but it's not coming from, from blame and hatred, but it's more trying to bring attention to things than just blaming and, and, and pointing the finger and saying hate the McDonald's hamburger company. They're the spoilers of the planet, and, and because that's the very same kind of energy that that corrupts. You know, whether you're hating McDonald's, it's still hatred. Or you're you're hating, uh, or McDonald's are hating you. It's still the the involvement with with hatred that comes out of ignorance. And that's why we, when it's not a matter of blame anymore, but of uh, letting go of that tendency to, to blame somebody. Life is like this. We have, a, in Buddhist reflectiveness, we say, life is like this. It, it feels this way. And so we're aware of, of, of these kind of feelings inside us that, that feel indignant or blame or that. And we're, we're accepting those feelings, but we're not following them anymore. We're not going to think that that once we get rid of mcdonald 's hamburgers that things are going to be all right, or that that uh, it's the the uh, timber companies in Borneo that are at fault, but it is it's really the just the ignorant human mind that's doing this the, the result is from ignorance from not understanding <coughs> things properly that we create these kind of conditions and so the the important Guide is towards towards enlightenment was seen properly then there's hope and possibility for a a society and a and a way of life that it would be a fulfillment or a perfection of our human and planetary state you know, that, that possibility where 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 this, we've learned the lessons we need to learn in this form we are in. And one thing like on planetary life we have, you know, obviously a a beautiful planet. Planet Earth is a very beautiful place. But we're only beginning to realize that as we're, as we're destroying it, isn't it? Before we didn't really think of it in that way. We just, because we live here, we we just take it for granted it's only when we when we when we begin to lose what what we what we've been taken for granted that we begin to look at it again in a different way like we here in in you know as we here in britain we talk about you know the beautiful trees and the forests and And yet, you know, the British woodlands and forests have almost been totally destroyed. (laughs) And, uh, you know, they're regrowing them again and all that, but as as far as uh, primary forests, I don't think there's anything left at all. But, uh, in, in North Borneo, which was primeval forest, jungle, Uh, And you talk to to people, native people in North Borneo about how beautiful, they can't see it. (laughs) If you tell them how much a a big hardwood tree is worth, their eyes light up. (laughs) And they would think you're being a bit silly if you, you know, if you're saying, but we can't cut down that tree. And, and, you know, like say the the ecologists, we've got to protect the trees. And they say, what do we want to protect them? They're here, you know, we can make lots of money out of selling these things. But this tree is a thousand years old. It doesn't mean anything. It, you, you start beginning to appreciate those once you start losing it all. Like you have in like, in tribal cultures, there's a, a the real respect for nature, oftentimes, uh, because they very much feel a part of it. Their whole their whole identity is with it. And uh, but then as you develop an ego, out, like a tribe, tribal people don't have separative egos yet like a tribal mentality, the the self view is very much a tribal view. You belong you're part of a of a bigger group. Your identity is with a tribe rather than with your body. And and therefore your your that tribal mind is more connected to the natural environment that it's in, too. But say as you say in the Western world especially, your 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 identity is very much with very artificial med- perceptions of yourself. Me as a personality is more real than my body. Isn't that? What I think and feel as a person is more important to me than actually the the body I have. It's taken me a long time and determination to accept my physical body and my mind, because I'm so conditioned on the on the perception level to to believe in and to hang on to perceptions of myself and and you know con- views and opinions about everything that are really just artifices. They're not. They have no. They have no reality in themselves. They're ephemeral. Uh, uh, shadows of the mind, and yet that's what we, like we could, we could fight over over communism as an ideal, but send like, in, send people off to fight in a, uh, a horrible battle with millions dying over our, our views about equal distribution of wealth and Marx and Lenin and all that. You know, that where does that come from? And it's totally artificial, isn't it? Created out of nothing natural. It's not based on natural law or anything. It is merely an ideal in the, that human beings have created in their brain. And yet we're willing to kind of sacrifice ourselves, you know, going to a battlefield and fight. You can see in the just in the Muslim world how willing they're, they're willing to say you if like they say uh, now I think the the Muslims have said that that the Iraqis want to have this jihad and fight off the the whole world, and that anyone any Muslim who dies in this jihad is going to go straight to heaven well that is that is a totally artificial that's a that's a an artifice of the mind that that and you could get people to go off and do you know go out into a battlefield and be killed with, for that reason. but um, because that's how divorced we can be from from any real understanding of, of natural law.